It's Tuesday, listeners, so get ready for some police corruption. First up is our documentary series from journalist Lenny Grimaldi. Lenny wrote a book called Chased that tells the surreal story of an undercover narcotics detective named Billy Chase, who worked inside the Bridgeport, Connecticut Police Department at the height of the crack wars in the 1980s. This story has it all. Corrupt cops, the Gambino crime family, crooked politicians, and an epic tale that defined an era of an American city. Here is the premiere episode of Chased, executive produced and written by Lenny Grimaldi. Late one autumn afternoon in 1989, Billy Chase had a feeling that something wasn't quite right. It was the intuitive feeling he had had often in his bizarre life, a life of aliases, paranoia, and danger, the life of an unusual undercover cop. In his short career, Billy Chase was a unicorn a black undercover cop that had penetrated not only the crack cocaine drug wars, but Italian organized crime inside the Gambino crime family. Billy Chase worked the streets of Bridgeport, Connecticut, where our story takes place. A tough working class enclave, roughly 60 miles from New York City. In 1989, the city was a war zone, plagued by drugs, guns, violence, and the mafia. Billy Chase, the man, was a complex human being who might also have been a law enforcement test tube for white privilege. There was a journalist I knew who not only was a reporter back in the 80s, he also was connected to the political machine that ran the city of Bridgeport. Lenny Grimaldi wrote a book about Billy Chase called Chased with the tagline, Alone, Black, and Undercover. It was a look at a man in an era of time that defined an American city. See, I've always been fascinated by the engines that push and pull a city forward or backwards, and to really tell the story of a city, like David Simon did in HBO's TV series The Wire, you gotta start with the cops and the robbers. And in Bridgeport, you gotta start with Lenny Grimaldi. The first question I wanna ask you is, what's the genesis of the idea to write about Billy Chase? I received a phone call from a literary agent in Manhattan named Frank Wyman. He was searching for somebody who knew the guys and dials of Bridgeport, who had a history of writing about organized crime. And I have a pretty hefty background in that area since I was a young reporter. I was fascinated by the underbelly of Bridgeport, its diversity, its ethnic diversity, the various personalities involved in law enforcement. And you had a situation when I was a young reporter, you had the federal government actively 
uh, investigating uh, corruption in the Bridgeport Police Department, as well as uh, public corruption in the mayor's office. So I really got to know a lot of the different players. Wyman had heard about Billy Chase's story from the um, late actor Danny Aiello, who apparently read about it somewhere. The book Chase essentially uh, tells the story of a black undercover cop who becomes a law enforcement test tube for white privilege. And that, that's something that we can develop and, and explore further because there's a, there's a lot more that's happened since. Billy Chase was raised on the north end of Bridgeport where thousands of Italian and Irish immigrants went to escape the despair of their homelands. Billy Chase played hoops in the basketball capital of Connecticut. Bridgeport alone had produced NBA players like Wes Matthews, John Bagley, Walter Luckett, and Charles Smith of New York Knicks fame. But Wyman wanted me uh, called me and said, hey, can you, you interested in, in working on this book project with me? And, and that's how it started. I had not, I heard of Billy Chase because I worked in the mayor's office. At the time, uh, Mayor Tom Busey assigned Billy Chase to work with a state and federal task force. Billy was actually a Bridgeport Police uh, Department officer. Busey appointed him to work on this task force. He made an, an amazing amount of difference and taking out a lot of bad guys. But you know, the, the deeper story here is really all about a man losing his identity. A black undercover cop hunts down drug dealers and, and mob guys, and then becomes the hunted because law enforcement couldn't and wouldn't defend him, him from the per perpetrators who was putting away and who made attempts on his life. You know, Billy Chase wasn't really even accorded the obligatory photo op going out the door. Billy Chase graduated from Central High School with honors and then went on to a basketball scholarship to Sacred Heart University. He was a young star, women, money, free cars, the trappings of a star college athlete. Billy also had an offer to play pro ball over in Europe, but by then his injuries had caught up to him. He was essentially a broken man at 33 years old. He crammed a whirlwind eight years into law enforcement in Bridgeport, but he left, you know, death threats. His house shot up. Uh, the brake lines cut on his girlfriend's car. I mean, these were not cream puffs he was going after. Some of these guys that he was bagging, he was playing basketball with in high school, but he brought it to a whole different level, you're going one where no black man had gone before, infiltrating a faction of the uh, of the Gambino crime family that was included in the in, in the massive indictment charge on Gotti that led eventually to his convicted uh, conviction after he had been exonerated three times by juries on federal charges. You know, usually when the heat's turned up, the bad guys leave town. In Billy Chase's case, the good guy had to leave town. I mean, the good guy is, it depends on your point of view. If, if you were a drug dealer in Bridgeport, <laughs> Billy Chase was a bad guy. Billy looked for another career path. And that path was to become a corrections officer 
at the Whaley Avenue Jail in New Haven, a prison guard's nightmare. While working corrections, Billy longed to be a cop. He had learned hard lessons inside the jail, how to operate among the worst of the worst. Bridgeport at this time was teetering on bankruptcy and the streets were crime infested. Bridgeport is a mid-sized city, city of 145,000 people, um, and, and Connecticut's largest city, was experiencing 60 murders a year. You don't have that today, but the crack epidemic and the drug wars, you know, the Dicks families, um, the Terminators, the number one family, these were the drug gangs and engulfed and overwhelmed us this entire life, trying to, trying to sort it all out, trying to make his superiors happy with no one really um, saying, how is this gonna affect him? How long is he gonna last? When's he gonna burn out? You know, they probably knew he was gonna burn out, but no one did anything about it until it reached a point where it became just a matter of survival. He had to leave town very quickly. I don't know if they have any kind of program today, but there was no program in place to protect or look after, provide guidance to an undercover cop who was experiencing regular death threats and attempts on his life. One of the key interviews for the book multiple times is Ron Bailey. He's now retired from the police department. He was Billy's closest friend. And he worked side by side with Billy. Now, Billy had balls that clanked. Billy was very much an imperfect person, flawed, admittedly flawed, but he was willing to do it. He, he liked the action in one regard. I think in another regard, he felt it was his calling to do something. He wanted to be worthy of the work. So he took it all on. He went where no black man had ever gone before, infiltrating a faction of the Gambino crime family because he allowed the color of green money to transcend race. So he, he was willing to take on a lot and his superiors were willing to use him a lot because they got they got to respond to people too, right? They have to, these superiors have to deal with all this violence and it's the push down effect, right? And what are you doing? What are you doing? And what are you doing down below? It gets pushed down to the guy who made them look good and the end it, it cost them dearly. So getting back to your question, it's it was, I think it's very um, institutional that there were no safeguards, no safety nets for a guy like Billy during this work. Yeah, he had a lot of his colleagues who were working side by side with him who would say, you're taking on too much. But Billy was a popular figure who could be used. In many stories that evolve around the 80s and 90s, as it relates to the war on drugs, the emotional journey of an undercover officer has been fodder in movies like Donnie Brasco, or even a movie I produced called The Infiltrator. In Billy Chase's story, I was curious if I could understand how an undercover unravels emotionally. And within that specific unraveling, how does that come to define a city? Remember, Billy went after black drug crews, Latin American crews, Italian organized crime, and maybe even the biggest gang in the police itself, to include the DEA, the FBI, and US attorneys who use people like Billy as pawns. It was a tough old factory town, also trying to find its identity. Bridgeport was um, one of the powerhouse industrial cities in the United States during World War I and World War II. 
two-thirds of all the arms and munitions for the Allied costs for World War One were manufactured in Bridgeport at the Remington Arms Plant. You know, it was it was 20 builder, buildings interconnected. It was the single largest factory building in the United States that at one point at its height employed inside that building 20,000 people. And so when you, you know, you started getting into the 50s and the 60s, a lot of those major manufacturers decided to move west to be next to the larger automobile companies. They went for cheaper labor and Bridgeport started losing its grand list, its taxable property. And that puts a major strain on a city, uh, on law enforcement, on police and fire. You don't have the revenue, the city didn't have the revenue sources once it, or the jobs. The loss of jobs created a huge gulf in Bridgeport. So some of those major institutions that were held the city together were now gone. You had some of those, believe it or not, those, those industrial buildings became havens for crack houses. It was just, it was just an awful, brutal situation. A lot of the clientele were from the suburbs coming into Bridgeport. At one point, the city put in Jersey barriers on the east side of Bridgeport. You know, these securitous in and out Jersey barriers to try to keep the suburban drug buyers out. That's the, that's the fascination about Bridgeport. This tough old industrial city is smack up against poverty. During this period in particular, you had deep pockets of poverty just minutes from some of the swankiest estates in the United States. Westport, Wilton, Easton, New Canaan, Darien, Greenwich, Fairfield County as the, um, Fairfield County, excuse me, is the richest county and the wealthiest state. And Billy did cases all along the Gulf Coast, the Gulf Coast of Connecticut. So it wasn't just Bridgeport. Billy was doing cases in Tony Westport, taking out drug dealing physicians, other drug gangs from Bridgeport to Greenwich, all the way down the line. Even in Stanford, Connecticut as well, he did work. So he had he had a lot on his plate. It, it wasn't just Bridgeport, but the fingers that went out into the suburbs and the suburban clientele that would sometimes come into Bridgeport. But he did isolated cases away from Bridgeport in these Tony wealthy towns along the Fairfield County Gold Coast. If you say Bridgeport, Connecticut in conversation, I think people would equate crime with inner city violence and the drug trade. But it was a mafia murder that informed Billy's perception of the streets. On September 19th, 1981, at approximately 2.45 p.m., Billy Chase was walking north on Main Street in Bridgeport for a pickup basketball game. The popping sound of gunfire blocks away roused his attention. Billy followed the sounds to find police personnel hovering over the body of Frank Frankie Cigars Piccolo the most powerful mobster in Connecticut. Witnessing this crime scene would have a profound effect on Billy's life. How does the mob get to Bridgeport? How does the Italian mafia oh, it find always, its way to Bridgeport? Or has uh, it always been there? Bridgeport was the hub in Connecticut uh, for, for a long time because of its proximity. Bridgeport's just it's 45, 50 minutes to get to the Bronx. It's an hour to get to Manhattan. You know, it's 50 to 60 miles to Manhattan. In fact, Billy, when he was a young man, before he 
was involved in, in law enforcement, he walked past the scene of one of the biggest mob hits in Connecticut history, the murder of Frank Piccolo, who was a, cap a captain in the Gambino crime family. Billy lived in that neighborhood off of the North End, and he walked upon the scene, and that was the Piccolo hit. And that was a significant hit because it had connections to Paul Castellano and John Gotti. Part of Gotti's rationale for taking out Castellano was that Castellano had used a rival family, the Genovese crime family, to take out Piccolo. Piccolo had brought a lot of unfavorable attention onto the um, Gambino crime family because he was charged in a high profile case of trying to extort money from Wayne Newton and Lola Falana. Uh, that was actually a, a, a trial that I covered. Piccolo never got to the trial because he was blown away, but his cousin Guido Panosi was charged along with him. In order to write the book on Billy Chase, Lenny Grimaldi sat with Billy in the spring of 1994 and interviewed him for close to 100 hours. These interviews were recorded to micro cassette. And at the top of this year, Lenny gave them to me. What I hoped to find or to explore was who was Billy Chase and who did he turn into when he went deep undercover into the drug wars of Bridgeport, Connecticut. He was inside a system that didn't treat him as an equal. If what Lenny was saying was true, would the words of Billy Chase define his descent into madness? You were in uniform, you said, screw this, I want some action in the streets. And based on my background, and like I said, I, it's a proposal. So it's like a business proposal for a business, right. for a, a small, a loan, right. for a small business loan. So I went to, like I said, they, I got into the unit, and they assigned me to um, Joe Hayducky and Jackie Flint, along with um, Terry Sprinkle from DEA. So this was on our own little task force in Bridgeport. They got me an apartment up on Park Avenue next to um, Park Towers. I had my own little, you know, office there. They rented me a car. And um, like I said, when I first started out, I mean, I had to come back familiar with the streets. So the Napoli was like... paid for the apartment? The city? Yeah, the city did. And uh, the thing is, the Napoli, you know, he, he gave me some expense money to go out there and just, just hang out. That's what do you want me to do? Isn't it like a training program? Uh, no, not really. I'm like, you got to be kidding me, you know what I mean? Like, no. I'll tell you what, we'll, go down, we'll, we'll call up, go down DEA, maybe they have a training program. You know what the training program was for undercovers? Two pages in this little book about undercover work. That was the only training for I the had. For the DEA? DEA too. I mean, this was, you know what I'm saying, I mean, for like a task force type thing, that was it. I mean, DEA, of course, they had their own academy, but it's not like they taught you how to be an undercover. Eventually, you went to their academy, you did some training. They give you some certificate to say that you went to some training. Yeah, that was for our laboratory and, um, uh, yeah, where analysis yeah, and shit. This is while I was working already. You know, you just right, trained to yeah. substantiate things, I right. imagine. Okay, and so let's uh, go back. So, all right, so the, you said, how about training? Well, you're on your own. Wing it. <laughs> That's wing it. So I had to kind of wing it, you know. So at that time, that's when I was starting to, the um, 
the Dix investigation. Now, you know, I become privy to information on who's doing what. All right. And um, what were your first days like? What were you doing? Uh, hanging out. Going, you know, like going out to the basketball court, shooting a little bit of hoop because I couldn't, like I said, I couldn't play because of my, you know, my one um, leg and whatnot. But I could still play. Where were you playing? I'd go down to the east side, you know what I'm saying, hang out. I'd go down to like a couple of bars. Couple strip bars, you know what I'm saying? Like Jackson's Lounge. But some, you know those people knew you, no? People knew me. Oh, you were moved I kept a low, I kept a low profile. Once everybody thought that I went overseas to play, you know, because once I stopped playing, I stopped associating, of course, with with different areas and going to different areas because now I was in the working world. So now there was no need for me to go down and be hanging out, you know, because I wasn't playing any ball. And the thing about it, a lot of people, and the thing for Monroe was they hooked it up where if they like somebody thought I was a Monroe cop. Well, I was. If you called Monroe, they would say that I got fired. Billy had started his career in Monroe, Connecticut, as a B cop, a town where it wasn't unusual for him to get a radio call to wrangle a loose cow. Billy left Monroe to hit the streets of arguably one of America's most dangerous cities. And in his own words, came up with a business proposal to the chief of police to go deep cover inside the neighborhoods where he grew up and was a known entity. His cover story was intact, but for how long? Next time on Chased. Okay. Tell us about the dicks. All right, the Dicks were, they were controlling the heroin over here on the east side. I mean, they were, man, these guys were Who were the Dicks for his names? Um, Carl Dicks, Alfred Dicks, Danny Dicks, Angelo Dicks. Angelo? <laughs> okay. Angelo Dicks. And, uh... These black guys? Mm-hmm. Where's Angelo come from? A black guy? Who the hell knows? Probably <laughs> Dicks Construction Company. They own that. Never heard of Dick's Construction Company. Over on the east side, anyway, they were, they were big. When it came to heroin, these guys were moving some heavy shit. They were moving some weight. So Carl, see, they I were operating pretty openly oh, for a man. long, many, many years. Hell, yeah, they, they couldn't touch them. Why? Couldn't touch them. Couldn't get anybody in there. Couldn't get anybody any undercover. They couldn't get anybody in there doing it. 